I particularly do. The, my favorite gospel is the Gospel of John, but my favorite chapter on the resurrection is in the Gospel of Luke, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, they're, they're all good, and they all go together to inform us. Um, but you wouldn't want to stay as long as it would take me to look through all four accounts. <laughs> I don't know that I'd want to stay that long, because it would take me a long, long time. But uh, this is my favorite chapter, and we'll be looking at it in, in, in just a little bit. Here we are on this day celebrating the resurrection, right? Resurrection Day is what I like to call it. I don't particularly care for the term Easter, but uh, it's Resurrection Day. It's the day that Jesus came out of the, out of the tomb, uh, rose from the dead so that we might live. Now, we remember that, in a sense, every single week as we come to the Lord's table and we focus our attention on his suffering and death for us. But it's not just his suffering and death that we remember Paul put it in these terms that every time that you remember the Lord, you you remind yourself that he's coming. And it's a proclamation that we believe he's going to return for us. So it's not like we don't uh, focus on the resurrection here, but one Sunday a year. We really do it every week. But this is the day that he came out of the grave, and it is worth our celebration. It's It's on the Christian calendar. It's on every calendar resurrection or Easter. And so I'm glad that we get to focus our attention on it again this morning. And as I was thinking through that, I've been uh, a, an elder, a pastor, shepherd here at ABF since 1982. And that's a lot of years. And there aren't that many passages that I can cover on the resurrection. There aren't 39 separate passages on the resurrection. So what we're going to look at today is something that you've heard before. Uh, but, you know, I kind of felt like, hmm, that's good. Because every time I read the accounts of the resurrection, I rejoice just like it's the first time, uh, you know, when I heard it and believed it. Uh, that's the nature of the Word of God, isn't it? It's living and active and sharper than two-edged sword. It's profitable. It's God's Word spoken and written for us. And it is intended to work in our life, transform us from the inside out. And I kind of feel that way about some sermons that I've preached, too, that, that uh, you know, I, I don't have a problem uh, sharing a sermon more than once. Any more than I had a problem uh, telling my kids more than once things that they should do or things that they shouldn't do or uh, give your mom thanks for the dinner that she made, give thanks God for uh, to, for the food that he has provided. So I'm excited of, uh, about being in Luke uh, 24. We particularly focused on verse 36 through 49. And what we read in this account in Luke's gospel is, is just one of the 12 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. I mean, there, there are two others in Luke 24, the women at the beginning and the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. Uh, those were two of the 12 as well. Uh, Mary uh, uh, Magdalene, uh, that was the first, you know, that, that happened. But this, uh, we're going to be focused on when Jesus uh, appeared uh, in the presence of the uh, 11. The Judas was, of course, gone, but uh, he meets in the room on the day of his resurrection with the 11 disciples. And, and the truth is, the very multiplicity of the resurrection appearances to people is part of what helps us to know it's true. It's true. It's verifiable. It's, 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 it's credible. It can be counted on. And, and our our passage that we're looking at this, this morning has some very convincing proofs in it. Very convincing proofs of the truth that we celebrate today. Luke would also write, not just the gospel, but his second volume was the book of Acts, right? And in Acts 1-3, he put it this way, before Jesus ascended up into heaven, 
he wrote, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Now that's how the ESV puts it. I think one of the other translations, perhaps the NAS or the New King James, I'm not sure which offhand, but one of them have the phrase by many convincing proof. And that's what the Greek word that is used in that text really emphasizes. It's not just a proof, but it's a convincing proof. It like catches your attention and makes you say, I believe that. It's a convincing proof. And he appeared to them uh, over a period of 40 days on and off with the 11 teaching them and speaking about the kingdom of God. So it wasn't just like a hit and miss appearance to people with the apostles. He met with them many times. But it was on the day of the Lord's resurrection that the events recorded in Luke uh, 24, 36 through 49 took place. And, and and then we, we compile all the gospel records and we think through that and we think about the women who had been at the crucifixion decided that they would do further preparation of the body for permanent entombment. And so they got up early in the morning, even before the sun rose, as how John put it with Mary Magdalene, and, and they head off to the tomb to do that. And they get there, and of course, it was already mentioned that the angels met them and said, what are you doing looking here? That's what it says in the beginning of Luke's uh, account in chapter 24. What are you doing here looking for him? He's not here. He's risen, just as he said he would be. And, uh, and, and the angel said, now go and tell the other, uh, go and tell the disciples that he's risen. And, and, and they did that. Uh, so Jesus appeared to Mary first and then to all the women who had accompanied her uh, to the tomb that morning. And, and, and then uh, according to Luke 24, 13 through 25, Jesus appeared to two other disciples. And, and that's a great story in itself. There's two men. One is named Cleopas, and we don't know the name of the other, but they are headed from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus, about a seven-mile walk. And as you read the account, they are dejected. They are disappointed. They are in despair as they're talking about what had happened on Passover when, when their Lord, their teacher, the one that they thought to be the Messiah, had died. And as they're going on that walk, the way I picture it, they come across Jesus. Although they don't know it's Jesus when they come across him. He's, I picture him kind of leaning up against the tree next to the road. And as they're walking by talking, he just kind of, says, where are you guys heading? Uh, well, we're heading to Emmaus today. That's as far as we'll probably get today. Oh, mind if I walk with you? Oh, no, sure, come on, join us. And they continue to talk. And what are you talking about, Jesus says? Well, we're talking about what happened. Are you the only one in all the world that hasn't heard what happened this, this you know, uh, on, on Friday uh, with, with uh, Jesus? And, and they tell the story and their disappointment and... And then Jesus opens up the scripture and he begins to tell them uh, how these things were revealed in the Old Testament. The things that had happened to him were revealed. And they still don't know who it is. And they finally get to a place where they're going to stop for the night. And I picture it's an inn and they go in. They're going to have a meal. And they sit down to have the meal and some bread gets brought to the table. uh, As it might be if you went to a restaurant here in town. And they serve bread with the meal, you know. And... And Jesus picks up the, the bread and he breaks it. And as he's breaking the bread and giving it to them, suddenly he's revealed to them. And then suddenly he's gone. He just vanishes. And uh, what do they do? What do they say? <laughs> We've got to head back to Jerusalem. We've got to tell the 11 about this. And they go back to Jerusalem and they begin to tell the story of what had happened with Jesus. And that's really in verses 28 through 35, what I just mentioned about Jesus' appearance to them. And then we come to verse 36. And let's just read from 36 through 43 right now. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. So the two were telling the eleven about what had happened. And Jesus stood among them and, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. 
For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were, uh, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, strange combination of emotions right there, right? Uh, disbelieving but still marveling at what's going on, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate before them. So, you know, you think that the, the two disciples getting there and telling them the story about what had happened and how Jesus revealed himself when he had broken bread with them. And, and suddenly Jesus is in their midst. But before Jesus appeared in their midst, I think, I wonder, were, were they thinking that Jesus would show up in their midst? I mean, if he, you know, they heard the women earlier in the day saying, hey, he's risen, we saw him. And, and now these two are saying, hey, he is risen, we saw him too. And I'm wondering if they're thinking that they must be next on the list. Surely Jesus is going to show up and visit them. But maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he wouldn't. They had all run away when he was arrested in the garden. Maybe he wouldn't show up. Maybe he was disappointed with them. And suddenly Jesus is in their midst. And what you need to know is that, that, that as yet, it, it's clear as you read the gospel accounts and even our own account, it's clear that they are not convinced by what the women had said or the two men. They're not convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. Mark specifically records that when he did appear to them, that he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he was risen, Mark 16, 14. So those that were closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry, those three, three and a half years, those who had walked with him throughout the whole uh, country, those who ate meals with him, those who served with him, those that watched him do miracle after miracle after miracle, they are not convinced by what the women have said or the two men. And Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. They had not believed. They were hesitant to believe that he truly could have come forth from the grave. And Luke just states briefly that while the two had returned from Emmaus, that Jesus just suddenly stood in their midst. Now, when you, when you read John's gospel, you realize that the doors were closed to the room. It was probably the same upper room that they had re- remembered the Passover meal with Jesus, just on Thursday night. And, and the doors were closed, and I assume there were probably about five bars going across it, you know, to make sure it was locked and no one would get in. And then suddenly Jesus in their midst. He didn't knock on the door. He didn't text ahead of time. He had no email, no alert came to them. Hey, I'm going to show up at seven o'clock. See you soon. I can't wait to see you again. No, he's suddenly standing in their midst. He just appears in their midst. So it, it makes some sense, doesn't it, when it says that they were startled? and troubled. I mean, you know, everything, as I think through this, I think everything that had happened on that day was building up to a moment when Jesus uh, would show up and the disciples would be driven into the corner of their disbelief and and, uh, be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus truly had risen from the dead. I mean, the the disciples are gathered there. How are they gathered there? They're in despair. They're in doubt. They're in fear. I think what the two disciples had shared with Jesus on the road is exactly how the eleven felt, maybe even more so, since they were those closest to Jesus and they had run away. I mean, they're not meeting in this upper room to plan the church calendar for the next year. The church hadn't even been born yet. That'd be 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit would come and give birth to the church. They, they weren't talking about 
church growth and, you know, uh, they weren't talking about we got to go out and share the gospel with people. They haven't yet believed the gospel. Not in its fullness, not in its fullness because the resurrection is a fundamental element of the gospel. They were slow of heart to believe. Mm. Believe what? Well, believe the prophets. The law and the, the prophets and the Psalms, the very thing that Jesus had opened up to the two on the road. And he's going to mention again as he speaks to them. They were slow of heart to believe it. Remember, David pointed out last week, I believe, that uh, you know, uh, Pilate and Herod had declared his innocence like five times. Five times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus had told the disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, be delivered over by the religious leaders to the Romans, and that he was going to suffer, and he was going to die, and that he would rise the third day. Five times, but they were slow of heart to believe that. And they didn't really understand it. And let's not be thinking, well, if I would have been there, I would have understood it. I would have believed. We would have been one of the eleven. We have been the two. We have been the startled women as well. Um, But what becomes clear as we read through this, and then we look on in the book of Acts in particular, we realize that their despair is turned to delight. Their fear is, is changed into courage. I mean, they will be those men who will go out and proclaim with great boldness the truth of the resurrection. They were slow of heart to get it, but once they got it, boy, did they share it. They were willing to suffer for him. They ran away on the night of his betrayal. They ran to suffering, in a sense, for him after the day of Pentecost. And the only reason that was true is because they came to believe the truth of the resurrection. So what could move them from despair and doubt and fear to confidence and joy and courage? Well, we'll see what moved them as as we look at this text these convincing proofs that Jesus gave them that he had indeed risen from the dead. And the very first one of those proofs that we see is it has to do with one of the things that we do all the time. We hear people. This is a convincing proof of hearing. I mean, Jesus appears in the room and he speaks to them, right? He speaks to them. And as he spoke, it was like he always spoke with great wisdom and patience and compassion. Even in his rebuke, I think he was compassionate toward them. He, from whom they had so painfully parted just days before, shows up and the first words out of his mouth, peace to you, peace to you. Luke Luke informs us that after his initial greeting, then he he tells us about the disciples. They were startled and they were frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And so Jesus mildly rebukes them in Luke's gospel too. Why are you troubled in your hearts and why do doubts arise in your hearts? So his first words, peace to you, must have uh, you know, reminded them. I mean, of just on Thursday night when he had shared the last Passover meal with them. And he instituted the Lord's table with them. He had spoke those same words to him in John 14, 27. That night he had said to them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. In John 14, 1, just verses before what I just read, Jesus had said to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and and I'm going to come back and get you to take you to your permanent home. Let your hearts not be troubled. 
and instead let the peace of God fill your heart. Do you not, do you not think that they would have been thinking of those words that they had just heard from him a couple nights before? And if they didn't recognize his voice, certainly they would have recognized those words. I mean, Lord Jesus was one with whom there had to be an air of peace, right? I mean, you don't imagine Jesus going around the countryside, facing the, the sinners and the sick and all the crowds, nor the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. You don't see him biting his nails and you know, he's really nervous and he's, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Oh no, what am I going to face when I go there? You don't see him that way. You see him at peace, right? He had an air of peace about him. And he himself communicated that peace to others. He, he was the peacemaker, wasn't he? He was the peacemaker. And, and thus he could say to the disciples about kingdom living, blessed are those who make peace. Because they're following his example. He was the peacemaker. And he was the peace giver. He would give peace to those who had been in turmoil, whether it was over their sin or their sickness or over death that had taken a loved one. And so by hearing his words, they get this convincing proof, the convincing proof of hearing him. I'm sure when they heard him speak those words, their hearts started immediately to shift from being troubled, from being doubtful, from being in despair, from being fearful. That's why they were in that room. They were afraid what had happened to Jesus was going to happen to them. And it all just quickly started to disperse away. And even as he reproached them for their unbelief, at the same time, wasn't he bringing compassion to their souls? I mean, why are you? You have no reason to be troubled. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And as he spoke those words, maybe they thought back to the occasion when they were, the disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and some of them were professional fishermen, and there was a storm, and, and Jesus came walking on the water. Remember that? You've read that account, right? And he comes walking up on the water, and they are terrified, and it says in that text, in, in John, they thought they were seeing a ghost, a spirit. Uh, that's what this text says too. They, they were startled and troubled. They thought they were seeing a spirit. And, and, and on that day when Jesus had come walking on the water to him, he said to them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. You, you don't think that they remembered that? Surely they did. Maybe they thought back to the time when they were with Jesus in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Another time. And they were crossing to go over to the other side, and in the middle of the night, a storm arose. And I mean, it's a storm that even frightened the professional fishermen. Water's coming over the sides of the boat. They think that they're going to sink, and they're looking around, and they see Jesus asleep. And they come up to Jesus, and they shake him, and they say, Master, don't, uh, don't you see we're about to perish? What, what's wrong with you? And what did Jesus say to them? I mean, they said to him, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And his response, why are you afraid? <laughs> you men of little faith. That's right. And then he rebuked the, the storm, and the, the wind died down, and the, the, the waves became perfectly calm. The sea was calm. So I think it's significant, as we consider this, that we'd recognize that this evidence uh, to the disciples stands out all the more because they themselves seemingly were the same men that they were when Jesus was in the boat or when Jesus came walking up on the water. Nothing has changed drastically for them with the death of Jesus. They're still troubled, fearful, despairing, doubtful, just like they were then. They were acting just like they acted before when Jesus had stilled the storm and walked on the water. And the point that you know, is worth making is simply this, that in the interval between his death, a couple days before, 
and his arrival in the room suddenly appearing in their midst. No great change that overcome them. They're, they're the same men, right? You see that? Nothing yet had happened to elevate them out of their weak faith. The Holy Spirit had not yet come and indwelt them. Uh, that wouldn't happen until Pentecost. And therefore, you know, all that they heard during the ministry of Jesus and even the encouraging words surrounding the Passover by Jesus and the institution of the Lord's Supper, what they had seen in Gethsemane as Jesus had prayed to, to accept the will of God even though it, he didn't want to go to the death. They said, your will be done, not my will. None of that had changed them drastically. None of that had really changed them in any way. They're still men of weakness and doubt and fear. So the point is, the same men then are hearing the same person, right? The same disciples are hearing the same Lord. And and this argues strongly for the correctness of their understanding, their identification, that this is Jesus that's talking to us. They're they're not men who, because of their anticipation of a miraculous thing that Jesus had talked about, him rising from the dead, you know, they're not carried away by enthusiasm looking forward to it. They were hard to come to it. They were doubtful. They disbelieved the women and the two. They're still men who are slow to believe. And if they then are convinced by this encounter with Jesus as they hear him speak, well then, we, we can depend on it. It must be so because they become drastically different people after this. If they go forth to tell the news of his resurrection and even yield up their lives for that message, then you too may be sure that their witness is true. Their witness is true. They're not men known for their acts of courage. In fact, the evidence is that they're men of fear. They had run away. In fact, the reason they were gathered in that upper room again was because they were afraid and they, they, they were hiding out until they could figure out how to escape what had happened to Jesus. These were men who needed to be convinced, right? They needed to be convinced by overwhelming evidence and, and, and they were so convinced. And part of what convinced them was this convincing proof of hearing him speak to them. Now, let me pause there just for a moment. Have you heard Jesus speak? Now, I'm not talking about hearing him speak audibly. I'm not talking about, you know, you're in a quiet room and suddenly there's someone talking to you and you're just like, you figure it out, it's Jesus talking to me. I mean, there's, there are preachers that say those kinds of things you know, I hear Jesus speak here. I speak all the time here. And so I'm not talking about have you heard Jesus speak audibly. But have you heard Jesus speak? Words that convince you of his resurrection and that he is the Lord. And that you are to follow him and that you are to serve him. I hope you have. And maybe there are some, you know, even in our midst here today, that you've not been convinced of his resurrection. You've heard it all your life. You, you know, you've been, you, you've heard it but from your parents, or, you know, the church that you went to. All your life you've heard that yeah, Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. He rose according to the scriptures. You know, we are to believe that. And, and you say, you know, yeah, I believe that. But do you really? Are you convinced of this? Or are you a, a person who... You know, you have doubts about it. It's like, have I been believing a lie? Have I been believing a fairy tale? Just a story, you know, that's been going on for 2,000 years? I would tell you, Christ wants you to hear him speak. And he will speak to you if you read his word. Particularly if you read his, the Gospels. It's his words that we hear here where we read 
And hopefully, in a sense, we are hearing them at the same time. Or I would say, have you not heard him speak through a, a, a true follower of Christ? Maybe someone that you knew before they believed in Christ. And boy, how their words changed. I mean, my words were immediately changed when I trusted in Christ when I was 17. I had a foul mouth, a wicked mouth, a blasphemous mouth in many ways. The moment I trusted in Christ, believed this truth of the gospel and the resurrection, my mouth was cleaned up. Not by me, by him. Because he came to live in me. Have you heard him speak? I hope you have. I hope you're convinced. The second proof was seeing him. Uh, you know, we've all, all heard things like, you know, well, oh, this is a story. I know, you know, I wouldn't have believed it if I wouldn't have seen it myself. Or someone may say, uh, well, you've got to see it to believe it. How many of you have heard something like that? Yeah. Like someone's telling a fish story, right? Oh, man, it was a monster. In reality, it was about this big. And it's much better if they say, it was a monster. Let me show you a picture. And I pull it out. And, of course, then you've got to figure out whether they're holding the fish out like this so it seems really, really big. You know, or are they up close to it? Or if it's not a fish, it's a moose or, you know, something else like that. But seeing can make a difference for us, right? Seeing can make a difference for us. The fact is, I mean, we're truly more convinced of something unusual or spectacular or wonderful if we can see it with our own eyes. And notice that Jesus, what he says to his disciples... He says, see my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So four times in these two verses, Luke mentions the convincing proof of seeing. John's gospel also includes Jesus mentioning his hands and his side where the nails had pierced him in his feet and his hands and where the spear had pierced him. And, and I don't doubt that in this sudden appearance and Jesus saying, look, see, see, see. He's got his hands out for them to see. Maybe he pulled up his robe so they could see his feet, his ankles, you know. Maybe he pulled his robe over his, his arm far enough so they could see the side where he was pierced. But I don't doubt that there were some squinting, blinking eyes, you know, that uh, were, were going on. Surely the, the disciples were, in a sense, doubting what they were seeing. In fact, Jesus, after they see him, Jesus mildly rebukes them. So their immediate reaction is, I can't, I can't believe my eyes. I can't believe my eyes. And some people suggest that the resurrection appearances of Jesus were simply not real. I mean, there are plenty of people that say that in the world. Well, that's a myth. That's a fairy tale. It didn't really happen. People don't resurrect from the dead. In fact, you know, you die, that's it. You cease to exist. And, and some of those naysayers would have you believe that the disciples, they were just so devastated by what had happened, and they wanted so badly to believe that he would resurrect from the dead that they hallucinated this account. They hallucinated seeing him. I, no doubt that's what the disciples had thought about what the women said to them. They disbelieved the women. You didn't really see him. They disbelieved the two, Cleopas and the other guy. They, they didn't believe. What was their conclusion? You, you had to be seeing things, right? So they were thinking that. But like most explanations that are given, 
which seek to deny the reality of Christ's resurrection, this one, it really doesn't stand up. And, and what I mean by that is hallucinations tend to be very individualized, just like dreams or nightmares. You know, I've never said to someone, you know, I had this really weird dream last night, and I tell them the dream, and they say, you know, I had that same dream last night. That never happens because dreams... Nightmares, hallucinations, if they do happen, they're very individualized. No two people have the same hallucination at the same time, or even at any other time. They're individualized. But even if you were to say, well, yeah, but these guys were very close, you know, and they're very close to Jesus. They're the 11, come on. They would have all had, you know, seen something in this hallucination. Maybe it wasn't exactly the same, but you tell the story and it sounds the same. You know, well, if you want to go there, how would you then deal with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6, where it says that over 500 people saw the resurrected Lord at the same time? All 500 of them had the same hallucination? You see, that just doesn't bear up. It doesn't bear up. I mean, it was a convincing proof to the disciples when they saw with their eyes that blessed body that had been so torturously dealt with by the Romans. The nail prints were visible, both in his hands and his feet. The mark of the gash of the, on his side from the Roman spear puncturing him to con, con, that confirmed that he was already dead. I mean, they, they could see it. He looked... He looked like a lamb that had been slain. In fact, that's the way John describes him in a vision that he had recorded in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. Where it says that he looked like a lamb that had been slain. He still bears the mark. Even though he, he has a new body, he still bears the mark of his suffering. I believe we'll see those same marks when we get to heaven and see him. Or when we go up into the air to meet him. These are the same signs, the same marks, the same convincing proof that Isaiah had prophesied 700 years earlier in Isaiah 53.5. Where it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. very thing he had said to them, peace be with you. The chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. And, and again, make no mistake, the disciples were not offered a mere glimpse, you know, a fleeting look at Jesus. This isn't like when you're driving down... You know, you're, you're going on the Parks Highway, you're going up to Denali or something like that. Or you're just driving around town with someone and they say, oh, look, there's a moose over there. And you look and you don't see the moose. And you're thinking, yeah, did they see a moose? I didn't see a moose. The moose doesn't exist if I don't see it. Right? It's not like that. It's not a fleeting glimpse This is a long gaze that they have looking at him. This was, to them, it was clear. This was no imposter standing before him. His identity was fixed and firmed in the disciples' understanding. Jesus, who had died, is now standing before them alive. It was the same Jesus who had hung upon the tree, was standing in their midst. Now, let me ask you, have you seen Jesus? Have you got that convincing proof? You say, well, you know, if, if I could see Jesus, then I would be convinced. Now, that's what a non-believer might say. If I could see him, then I believe, because, you know, I'm that way. If I can see it, then I can believe it. If I can't see it, I won't believe it. Or, or, or maybe, you know, you're, you're a professing Christian and you're thinking yeah you know I I struggle all the time with doubts and it's like maybe it's real maybe it's not but hey you know after all being a Christian is a good thing anyway so even if it's not true what you know it's not a bad thing 
Well, Paul says that's ridiculous. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, our faith is uh, in vain, and we are of all people most to be pitied if we believe the lie. I mean, if Christ isn't risen, go eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die, and that's it. But have you seen Jesus? You say, well, I... Now listen, I'm not talking about him suddenly appearing in our midst here, like, Jesus, come and stand on the platform with me to prove to people that you're alive. I'm not talking about that. And there are preachers who say, oh, I've seen Jesus. You know, I, I went to heaven and I saw him and, you know, all that. I discount that. Paul wasn't allowed to describe what he saw in heaven. I, I'm talking about seeing Jesus as you read the Gospels. He's a real person. He's a living man. He's also God, but he's a living man. You can see him if you read the Gospels. Or how about, again, do you see him in your wife? A co-worker? You know, a person who has been following Christ for years, do you see him? You should. You should. He lives in us. And if you could have seen me before I came to know Christ and seen me after, it's almost like you can remember seeing me before my surgery. And, and so many people have told me, now that I've had my back surgery, it's like, wow, you look so much better. It's, it's, it's that evident, right? And that's the way it is in the life of a believer. Because Jesus lives in them. So if you want that convincing proof, just get your sights on those who have followed him. And you'll see, you'll see Jesus alive in them. Or the convincing proof of touching, how about that? That's the third one. And I think there's almost that they might be absolutely sure the Lord invites them to have this convincing proof of touch. He urged them to a form of evidence which maybe would have caused some of them to recoil at first. Like, here, here touch me. I don't, I don't want to touch the wound, right? I just had surgery. I mean, my wife would have to do the dressing. I couldn't look at it because it's on my back, but she would look at it. And I mean, first time she looked at it, I was like, Neh. You kind of recoil from that kind of thing, you know? It's not right. And, and they might have recoiled initially, but he gives them this proof. Again, this is what he said. Touch me. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So this wasn't a phantom standing for them, not a spirit as they thought. What they were hearing and what they were seeing was not simply the spirit of one that they knew while he was still alive. I mean, he was flesh and bones. There was substance to the one who was speaking to them, the one standing in their midst. He had not put on the mere appearance of a man. He was a man. God-man, but he's a man. He, his body could be touched and handled. And if you want to know the convincing nature of this to those 11, listen to the words of John. As he wrote a letter to a church some 60 years after this. This is in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And you hear how convinced he was by these proofs. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Sixty years later, it's like he's hearing the words. It's like he's seeing Christ standing before him. It's like he's reaching out and touching him, isn't it? And so it was, we read in John's Gospel, that when Jesus appeared on this night of his resurrection, the eleven were there. Well, not 
the eleven. Judas, of course, was already gone. He had hung himself. But Thomas wasn't there that night either. You read this in John's Gospel, that he wasn't there when Jesus appeared. And when he showed up later after Jesus had suddenly disappeared, the disciples say, hey, Jesus is risen. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him. He's alive. And, and Thomas didn't believe it. We, we, we read them saying, we've seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and I can place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's one of his closest followers, right? One who in John 11, after Jesus said, Lazarus is dead and we're going to go up there. And they said, well, let's all go with him. Thomas made the statement, let's all go with him. If we die, we die. And now he, you know, on the night of the resurrection, he hadn't seen Jesus. And he says, I won't believe it unless I see it, hear it, touch it. And so it was, according to John, eight days later, the disciples were inside the room again, and Thomas was with them. And, and John writes it this way, And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, What do you think he said? Peace be with you. Same thing he had said that, that first night. Peace be with you. And, and then he turned directly, looking at Thomas, and he said this, Put here your finger. Put here your finger and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas said, I'll never believe it unless I see it, hear it, touch it. Jesus, by the way, did you get it? Jesus knew what Thomas had said. Right? That's his omniscience. He knew what Thomas had said. And so he said, you want to see it, hear it, touch it. Here. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. And so Jesus was telling Thomas, you know, if, if, if you doubt what you hears, heard, and what, you know, was reported by the other guys, and even what your eyes are seeing now, just reach out and touch me, and you'll be convinced. And he was. How do I know that? Because Thomas said, right after that, he said, my Lord and my God. And by the way, he was not saying, oh my God! That, was, that would be blasphemy. He was saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and you are God. <laughs> hmm. Have you touched Jesus? You say, well, you know, if I could touch him, if I could put my finger in the nail print, in his hand and his feet, if I could put my hand on, the, on his side and feel the scar, then I would believe. Or maybe you're just a doubtful person, even one who professes to be a believer. But you just don't know. You, you've, struggled, you've struggled with the reality of it. Is it really true? Can we really trust this word that speaks this truth to us. I, I just don't know. If I could just touch him, of course, then I would believe. Touch him. Touch him. Yeah, he's touched us. Touch him. Read his word. You'll, you'll touch him. Or just reach over. If you have a believing wife or a believing husband or a believing son or daughter or brother or sister in the just reach over and touch them would you I know that may not be COVID protocol but do it with your family member just reach over and touch did you you know that you're touching Jesus the third child of God is Jesus living in them yeah of course you if you're a believer a true follower one who has been convinced like the disciples you've touched him don't be disbelieving don't be doubtful, fearful. Be convinced. That's why this was written. And then there's the last little one, you know, the convincing proof of eating. It's almost comical, isn't it? As though the disciples, does he still see just a little bit of doubt in their eyes? He said, hey, do you have anything to eat? Uh, well, yeah, we have some broiled fish here. Well, give me a piece. And he takes a piece and puts it in his mouth. And 
chews on it. I can almost see the smile on his face as he's sensing the flavors of the fish that was broiled. One thing they didn't see was through his body and see the fish kind of go down. You know, it was like, no, they didn't see that. They saw a man eating a piece of fish. It was a convincing proof to them. Now, I'm not going to tell you to, you know, eat Jesus. Although, in a sense, we do that when we remember the Lord. We eat of the bread that tells us that he sacrificed himself for us. We drink of the cup that tells us that he shed his blood for us. So what was the whole point of this? Now, it's 11.59. We're going to go a few minutes longer. Are you okay with that? We're still in the same gospel, so you, you, really you don't have any choice right now. Anyway, so let's read verse 44 through 49. Here's the point. This is why Jesus was giving them these convincing proofs. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Clearly they had not understood it when he had told them before. So he opens their minds now to understand what he had told them before, right out of the Old Testament, which basically this is telling us, by the way, that the whole Old Testament was speaking about Jesus. He is the fulfillment of it. And so he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are convinced witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what was the whole point of it? The point of it was to get them to go out and tell other people that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that Jesus was the only place where you could find forgiveness for sins. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see it clearly. That's exactly what they did. They were so convinced by these proofs that Jesus has shown them that they went out and they, were, they went into suffering for their proclamation of the gospel, which included, we saw Jesus alive. We heard Jesus speak after he was risen. We touched him. After he resurrected. We even ate with him. After he was resurrected. And, and if you'll believe that. You can receive forgiveness. Of sins. Because forgiveness comes. In Jesus. So repent. Change your mind. That's what Jesus was saying to Thomas. Change your mind. Don't be disbelieving. Be believing. And that's what the the apostles would go out and share with the world and what we are to share with the world. Don't be disbelieving. Believe. Believe. Because you can trust this word. You, you can believe that Jesus died. He actually died on the cross. He didn't swoon. He died on the cross. He was buried. And he rose from the dead. And you must believe that if you are to be forgiven your sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, as Pastor Tom said early on at the beginning of the service, was God's mark of approval concerning the work of the great substitute. Paul put it this way in Romans 1, 3-4. Concerning his son, the gospel which concerns his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was real man. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, there's no declaration of him being the son of God with power. There's no declaration that he can forgive us and give us eternal life. 
is all tied, not just to his death, but to his resurrection. Paul would say in Rome, uh, Romans 4, verse 25, that he died because of our trespasses and was raised for our justification. It's twofold. Jesus had to die for our sins, otherwise we would die from our sins. And we would face eternal separation. But if Jesus didn't resurrect, it wouldn't have meant anything. There would have been no declaration of being right with God. He had to resurrect. He was raised for our justification. And because we have justification by faith, we have peace with God. We can truly experience what Jesus said to those men that night. Peace be with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world knows peace. No, no, nothing like that. I give you eternal peace. I give you rest to your souls because you are forgiven by me. This is what they preach. This is what they preach. Listen, Acts 2.38. Peter put it this way. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in Jesus' name, in, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 3.18 and 19. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Forgiven. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 5.30 and 31, the, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 10.43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And Acts 13.38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. See, that's, that's why the message that we share is called the gospel. The Greek word euangelion means good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. It's good news because we can have our sins forgiven and we can be made right with God. And that could not happen had Jesus not resurrected from the dead. So, bottom line, if you're here today and you haven't believed, you came in here not believing, uh, you kind of mouthed it, but you never really believed it. Don't disbelieve. Believe. This was written for your sake. That you would be convinced by these proofs of hearing and seeing and touching and eating. Just like those men were. Like those men who would go and give up their lives, not for a lie, but for the truth. The truth of forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Through his death burial, and resurrection. And if you came here today and you're a professing believer, and you are a believer, let's say, but you, you, you've been doubting God a lot lately. You've been fearful a lot lately with what's going on in the world, what's going on in your life. Listen to Jesus today, would you? Peace. Peace to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let doubts arise in your hearts. Believe in God. Believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if you came here today, like me, and you're like, yeah, I've been a believer for a long time. I've been a believer since I was 17. I'm still just as excited about the forgiveness that I received in Jesus' name as the day that I was forgiven. And I'm more confident about that forgiveness than I have ever been. Not because some new truth has been given to me. Because the truth that is given in these words that we've looked at today have taken up better residence in my soul. They've sprouted up and produced fruit in my soul. The fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness and kindness and self-control. Something I never could do apart from the risen Lord Jesus living in me.
So there's a message here for each one of us, isn't there? If you've not been forgiven, we stay afterwards. We're going to sing one song. Come up, team, if you would. We're going to sing a song to end our service. But if you would, come up and talk to me. Or maybe we could get a couple other people that could just come up. If you have doubts about it, come on, let's talk about it. Don't leave here today disbelieving or doubting. Leave with confidence. Why? Because he lives. Because he lives.